City University Television presents The American Theatre Wing Seminars Working in the Theatre This seminar, Staging the Classics Hello, I'm Sandra Gilman, Chairman of the American Theatre Wing, with our Board President, Doug Leeds. Welcome to the American Theatre Wing's Working in the Theatre Seminars. Today, we're talking about staging the classics. We'll be back later during the program to tell you about what the American Theatre Wing does. But right now, let's join our exciting panel and our moderator, the distinguished critic, Jeffrey Eric Jenkins. Hello, everyone. In the, for many centuries, actors and playwrights were the leading people who provided staging for theatrical productions. As we entered into the modern era in the 19th century, an idea developed for a single person to provide a unifying perspective. Today, these people are called directors, and they serve as a kind of well, sometimes it's an autocrat, sometimes it's a tyrant, sometimes it's a benevolent hegemon. I'm reluctant to call it those things because of the people I'm <laughs> surrounded by today. But it varies from company to company. We're going to explore that today. On this edition of the American Theater Wing's Working in the Theater Seminars, we'll be talking with five terrific directors about staging the classics, the challenges and the enjoyment that they get from that, and also talking about some of the other issues in directing in the United States. But first, let's meet our panel. Beginning from my far right, we have Anne Bogart. Anne Bogart is an internationally renowned director, uh, the artistic director, founding artistic director of the City Company with Tadashi Suzuki in 1992. She heads the graduate directing program at Columbia University and is the recipient of a Guggenheim Fellowship. Bartlett Scher is the artistic director of the Intamon Theater Company in Seattle. His production of The Light in the Piazza, which was developed in Seattle and moved eventually to New York, won six Tony Awards last season. He has an upcoming production of Clifford Odets' 1935 play, Awake and Sing, slated for the Belasco Theater in April, again under the auspices of Lincoln Center Theater, which of course sponsored uh, Light in the Piazza. Barbara Gaines is the founder and artistic director of the Chicago Shakespeare Theater, which started on the roof of, the, of Chicago's Red Lion Pub in the 1980s and is now located in a new $24 million multi-venue complex at Chicago's Navy Pier. And I think there are probably people who want to know how to do that. <laughs> Mark Lamos is the former artistic director of the Tony Award-winning Hartford Stage. He is a respected, a highly respected director of theater and opera whose production of The Rivals at Lincoln Center last year was one of the great delights of the season. He has an upcoming Broadway production of Edward Albee's play Seascape, a 1975 Pulitzer Prize winner that is something of a classic itself. Now, when we do these panels, we often focus on New York, specifically on Broadway theater. 
I mean, of course, uh, New York theater has been heavily influenced for the past several decades by the constant influx and outflow of artistic talents to and from the various regions around the country. Everyone on this panel has worked together. They've worked all over the country, all over the world. And I hope as we develop today, we'll have an opportunity to discuss the evolving nature of theater in the United States. But first, though, I'd like to discuss the notion of classic theater. All too often today, we hear the phrase, it's an instant classic, or perhaps more ironically, oh, that's classic. <laughs> when we say classic play, Anne Bogart, what, what does that mean? And I'm hoping we have some divergent opinions on this topic. Anne? Uh, I'm delighted to answer that question, because um, I think about it a lot. Uh, actually, um, to me, a classic play is not only a play that exists uh, for the first time, but it's a play that carries the baggage of its own history. For example, if you do uh, Streetcar Named Desire, what do you do with Marlon Brando? So that it's like a, a, a little collecting cup of, 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 of memory. And to me, you know, the theater is about remembering. If, if it were a verb, it would be to remember, I think. So the issue of a classic play, the richer the play, the more complex history it brings with it. So for a director, is do you pretend that, that history doesn't exist and you're doing it for the first time? Or do you include somehow the history that that play brings with it of performers who've done it, of other directors who's, who've, who've had takes on it? Personally, I like to look at the history and consider it part of the play mm -hmm. and everybody's interpretation and take it into consideration as I move through it. Now certainly when we're thinking about classic plays, we think of A Streetcar Named Desire, we think of those plays as Williams, and we also think of other types of classic plays that go back even further. I mean, we, we think back uh, 2,500 years in, in Western drama. How do we uh, approach that notion of, of classic play? Mark Lamos, what, what, how do you see the <coughs> difference between a classic play that's more uh, modern, let's say, in the case of Tennessee Williams, and the earlier kinds of versions? Is there a different way of approaching I think everyone calls up a different approach somehow. Um, I, in fact, the, the older I get, the more fascinated I am by what a play requires of me. And, um, and listening to the play, whether it's on the page or, or in, the, in the mouths of the actors, say, auditioning for me at, at first, um, I try to discover what tools I might need to, to get personal with that play. You know, for me, it's a question of, of um, you know, a very, a very personal response to the play, very often through an actor that will inspire me somehow. So I, I study the play. I don't study the play. I kind of let the play sort of steep <laughs> in a very unfocused way and I when do. You, excuse me. When you say steeped, what what do you mean by that? Can can be give us a sense a little more specifically? It's, it's a very does it work on your consciousness, or are you? How do, how does that? It's a feckless develop? approach, and I don't recommend it. But um, <laughs> but it's 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 because I have this strange way of learning. Actually, it's not a disability. It's just a way of learning, which is that um, it's a little bit like you know ADD. I have to kind of. I'll sometimes read scenes out of context, or I'll read dramaturgy, or look at pictures of other productions, or 
listen to something or, and it slowly begins to coalesce for me, but then it really funnels in when I hear it, when I hear the actors read it. And so I, I, I get to a level of like yeah, steeping in the tea up to the auditions, driving everybody with their deadlines a little bit crazy because I know that when I hear the actors, I'll start to understand the play in a way I absolutely couldn't even reading it aloud to myself. When you say driving everybody a little crazy with their deadlines, you mean the designers? You haven't made decisions yet and they're going, I have to make costumes? And the producers. <laughs> <laughs> well, now, that's interesting that you, you said something about ADD because I know that Bart Scher has, uh, he told New York Magazine a few years ago that he was the world's greatest ADD director. Yes. <laughs> and, and you did that production, well, a couple of your productions really uh, brought you to the attention of the New Yorkers were um, your production of Waste, the Harley Granville Barker play about a, uh, um, about a politician whose libido gets in the way of his judgment and appearing in the year 2000 at the end of a different presidency, it had a certain cultural resonance. Now, uh, or more recently, you did also Cymbeline, which was a sort of Asian slash Elizabethan slash cowboy inflected version of the Shakespeare play. Sounds great. <laughs> it, well, it was pretty <laughs> terrific. No, I'm kidding. With all uh, that harm, all those cowboy harmonies and all those different yeah. kinds of stuff. How, do, how does this approach, now you, I, I should add, acknowledge that you and Mark were together at Hartford Stage. You were his associate artistic director for some years. Yep. So did some of this ADD so thing I wear my off? ADD or? <laughs> uh, I think, um, I think uh, the ADD part's sort of separate from whether it's a classic, but the ADD part for me is somewhat maybe similar. It's just that I think that people perceptually experience things now differently and on so many different levels. Mm -hmm. So when you go to actually direct something, it has to kind of fill all the holes of people's active perception, language, sound, design, so all these things, and really good at this too. So you're kind of constantly tracking more levels at one time than you would expect. And you're it's not as linear, perhaps, as storytelling might have been, although I don't really sort of completely suggest that. So the ADD part is also a function of what's great about being a director. It's usually very well suited to people who can, because uh, ADD people are very calm in very chaotic circumstances. Mm -hmm. So the more that's going on, the more they kind of cool down. So when you're directing and there are 14 things happening at once and there's all this stuff going on, you sort of fall into kind of a quiet, happy place <laughs> and, um, and uh, you're, you're pretty present in that and at the same time you're able to take in the language and see the actors and notice that somebody's pissed off over there and notice what's going on here and that they're sleeping together now and you didn't realize that and all these things are going on all at once and you're trying to work on the scene and that's sort of where it's kind of fun and at the same time you build a similar level as you go back to a scene you build a similar level of sort of information into each piece into each section which then the audience takes in you can't bore audiences, I think probably everybody here would agree, the worst thing is we all want to actually be really entertaining. Of and course. So we do a lot of stuff to fill in all the gaps. Of well, in Cymbeline, you had these, this, uh, and I, I don't mean this pejoratively, you had this mishmash of styles yes. that I think actually helped the audiences to track the stories. There was a yeah. linearity within the, the mishmash. In right. Waste, everything was pretty much set in a 1907, uh, in the era of England and that sort of thing, and there was a different kind of linearity but to people it. will find with Shakespeare that Shakespeare by his own nature is not period 
specific. He's got like 18 different things going on at once. So in doing symboline, all I did was observe what I thought each period was and then hoped, I didn't worry about style, I just thought style, like Breck says, style would be something we'd have at the end if we were lucky. <laughs> and um, so we just sort of added them all together. And so one really felt like re Renaissance, one felt ancient Britain, one felt, you know, country. So each one suggested a different idea and it built, like any, you know, interesting work of art, its own autonomous world. And inside of that had its own logic. So I just, part of the job of not knowing too much, as Mark kind of beautifully described it as you kind of figure out what that logic is as you're going along and then build the logic as the piece sort of gives you information. But it's different than a Granville Barker which is exclusively within a very particular time and place and context that was harder. There were other ways in which I messed around with time and space there but that's different. Well, you know, when I talk to students, <coughs> I say to them uh, that there is never <coughs> a reason to do a play unless there's a reason to do a play. And I know it sounds maybe kind of circuitous, but what I mean by that is that there's, there has to be a reason to do a play. And Barbara Gaines, I'm wondering what you think is the role of classic plays in, in American society today. Well, it's not just American society. I think that, for me, I, I agree with Anne, your description of it, totally. But then I think I would just add that, that Classics for me mean something so universal that no matter where this classic play is playing, people will understand it, whether it be in South Korea or in Thailand or in Brooklyn, we'll get it just because the theme is so powerful. I think that's also because um, uh, the, what, what makes a great play is that it has a great question. Right and that those questions endure over centuries, so not over t only over space, but over time. So for example, why do we keep doing the Greek plays? Because hubris is still an issue, and more than ever, and perhaps looking at hubris through the lens of a Greek play is a way of being able to see it without taking it so personally that we're offended. Exactly. It's, a, it's, it's, it's time and space, isn't it? Right, it is. Yeah. And, and uh, quite frankly, I mean, I work mostly with Shakespeare, um, I work with a dead man most of the time, and but um, but the the fact They're is they're more compliant, aren't they? <laughs> yeah, well, I can cut whatever I want, <laughs> but the I think that the key is is that the themes and people haven't changed in 500 years, or I'm guessing 5,000 years. A parent still feels the same way in their hearts and souls when a child dies 5,000 years ago as they do now. And so I, I, I mean, these are, and that's what I mean by that universality, that our emotions, I mean, I'm not sure how much we humans have progressed over time, actually. I know there are some very, you know, obvious changes that have taken place even in American society over the last 50 years, say. But <coughs> at heart, at our core, I'm not sure. Mm. We know the historian, uh, uh, Lawrence Levine has written that Shakespeare is an American playwright and of course in the 19th century he was the most popular playwright in this country and if even if we look in the modern era there have been more revivals of Shakespeare on Broadway than um, of any other playwright <coughs> at all. Mark how do you feel that that Shakespeare in particular uh, continues to to speak to us speak to a certain Americanness? Barbara's talked about this sort of yeah, more global I, aspect. I think it's something that both, both, both the women on the panel have said, that um, you, you find that you 
a so-called classic play, but probably any play, can help you organize a series of feelings and responses to the world that you may be taking either so personally that you can't cope or, or not, not seriously enough, whether it's political or, or personal. And the play, through sheer artifice and the devotion of actors and what have you and the eye of the director, etc., begins to give you an uncanny way of um, focusing your belief system about various things. Um, and, and I suppose that, you know, when, when part of what's so beautiful about, about these plays is exactly what Barbara said, that if we haven't changed, then we can learn and learn and learn. And there's, there's little I find more sort of interiorally thrilling than connecting with a character or an in, in, a situation that was written by someone who's, who's, who only exists through these words and, and, and not even in my own language, like Medea or something, or, or a Shakespeare play, where those astonishing moments that we've all had, the four of us, where you are just knocked to the back wall by something in a rehearsal that you hear and it's as if it's personally about you and it's coming out of you know this 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 conjunction of the actors this ancient text pronunciation i don't know and what's happening that day in your life and in the world where all of a sudden it just coalesces into some meaningful learning experience that is is both uh, spiritual and 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 as common as dirt, you know, as, 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 as necessary as food. Um, I'm not sure I answered your question. Well, well it's, it's all works, though. It all, it all seems to, you know, uh, co everything kind of coheres here about what, what people are saying. <coughs> what, what I'm interested in in, uh, in Anne Bogart's work is there's a, a kind of a development of a new kind of classic in a certain way. I mean, I know that you've worked on modern classics like uh, The Adding Machine and, uh, and Miss Julie and that sort of thing, but you've also taken Andy Warhol, uh, or a fictional Andy Warhol, or maybe real Andy Warhol, to, into Dante's Inferno with uh, Culture of Desire. Now, how do those kinds of, what, iconographic, popular iconographic images um, interact with or intersect with um, uh, classical works in, in your work and in your mind and, and in your approach? Well, in the same sense that a classic play carries its baggage, as I was saying earlier, there are people who carry baggage. Andy Warhol, if I say his name, everybody has a million associations. So that's interesting. So you start playing with that. The theater is, in one way, about playing with expectations. Actually, all art is, music is that expectations that an audience brings with them in relationship to the first moment of the play. What do they expect the rest of the play based on the first minute of the play? So, or if you look at somebody, and I've done works about Orson Welles or even Robert Wilson, who's alive now, but people have a lot of associations about him, or Virginia Woolf or Robert Rauschenberg or coming up uh, 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 Joseph Cornell. Um, but these people are classics. But I do them for a very selfish reason. I don't say I'm doing them because they're a classic. I usually work on plays about human beings that interest me because I want to stand on their shoulders. In other words, somebody like Orson Welles is such a magnificent man, such an amazing American who 
just drank and ate every ounce of what American culture was and spat it out again. And he's such a big man, not only physically, but just in terms of how he took up space. And I like that, and I want to learn from him. So I say, I want to spend two years with this man. And so now he's in my, my sinews and my muscles. And it's that selfish reason that I also get to share with audiences that uh, makes one of the things that makes um, the theater a very honorable profession, because ultimately it's I, for others. I would say, though, that I, I think it's worth making a distinction uh, between the creative mechanism of theater and the interpretive. Because in a way, and I don't want to speak for them versus Anne's, Anne's, Anne's it, uh, working at a different level in terms of what she makes. She's more of a creative mechanism than an interpretive mechanism. Mm. And that's not to say one is more important than the other, but she takes a whole number of texts and sort of organizes and creates something that, you know, sometimes she does in interpretive plays, actual plays, but it's, a, it's an extraordinary totally different kind of mechanism than, say, the investigation of whatever, just doing a Cymbeline or a Merchant of Venice or what have you. And it's an interesting thing that both things uh, are different natures of a director. I find that the creative, for me, is way harder. I can't do that part. I can do the interpretive very well, and I'm always impressed and excited around people who are actual, the creative ones, who write it or compose it or uh, invent it from whole cloth, but in the case of the in actual interpretive mechanism, it's a different investigation of the classical, uh, what a classic may be inside of a culture, and it's a different experience for an audience in terms of whether they're going into, uh, I don't know, see a Shakespeare, and they've been, and they've heard about it, and they're seeing it, and there's certain associations they make with it, which is different than if you explode the whole thing and you do a whole piece to something else. It's just an interesting um, sort of a but I think what we do, I mean, this is purely personal, but it's based on, you know, a lot of thinking about it and watching. I think what we do, or maybe what you're talking about as well, is, is I feel like a craftsman. I don't feel like an artist. Mm -hmm. right. When I acted, I felt like an artist. Right. And the last couple times I acted, which were quite long ago, I, while I had already, then I had begun directing, you know, when I went back into the actor mode, I thought, oh, this is being an artist. Oddly enough, you're speaking someone else's lines, in this case, I was, um, being directed, etc., working with people, but that felt like an artist, and I don't know what, how I can't define that, whereas what I do otherwise is building a ship of some kind, and, or listening to the way the water's flowing in a stream before you know where to put the dam or tell the beavers to get out or what have you, you know. <laughs> And I've heard you say that before, and I think that's right. I mean, I don't know that I, I mean, I, I suppose I want to believe I'm an artist, but I don't think that you get the same thing out of it when there's a pre-existing reality that you sort of help bring to life, mm -hmm. which, you know, Shakespeare's made geniuses of a lot of people. And, um, <laughs> and, uh, and he's such an extraordinary craftsman and teacher and taskmaster and, you know, sort of all of us learn, I mean, I know I've learned everything about how I help you know, in a process with a new writer, all because of being able to work with Shakespeare. So it's, that's the kind of interesting... Shakespeare tells us so much, though, doesn't he, in the yeah. text. I mean, it's so, he's so unlike really any other playwright in that all the clues, so much, and, and of course then there's all the mystery. There are all the clues that an actor needs or a director might need right within the words. And, and then there's all this mystery about it. I mean, he's mystical. You'll never solve it all. You'll never continually... You're continually peeling the onion. You can never get it all. It's, I mean, it's, I feel like basically just a guide. I wish I felt like a craftsman. I mean, mostly I just feel like I'm 
mm. just peeling an onion. <laughs> Actually, my, my favorite living writer, Chuck Mee, said about Shakespeare, he said, what makes Shakespeare different from <clears throat> other writers is that with most, most writers, you start out with the characters and you feel like you don't know who they are and by the end of the play you know who they are. But with Shakespeare you start out thinking you know who the characters are and by the end of the play you have no idea who they are. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's good, isn't it? What I think makes it, uh, it re always, always rich. Right. Because it, op it opens up rather than closes down. Is there a different process for you uh, between this sort of creative and interpretive work? Because I, I think you do a kind of interpretive work. I've seen a number of those productions of yours and that kind of creative work, is there a different kind of approach? And you work, maybe you could talk a little bit about the company system in which you work, which is uh, very collaborative, is my understanding about it. Yeah, I mean, that's provoking a lot of <coughs> questions. First of all, I don't feel like a, a creator, and there are creators in the world who I admire and I steal from. I feel like a scavenger. In other words, I travel around the world and I believe in the, the um, uh, technique, it's called in French, frisson de corps, mm -hmm. which means in English, goosebumps. <laughs> which is in other words, if something, an interaction with an idea or something I'm reading or somebody in a conversation or something I see gives me that physical reaction, I follow it and I incorporate it and I learn from it and I put it all together with other things that I don't understand and I'm fascinated by. So I, I am in awe of people who make things up. I don't have anything original. At the same time, <clears throat> unlike Mark, I do choose to see the theater as an art form. Therefore, I choose, and it's a choice, it's a personal choice, I choose to approach it as an artist, which makes me ask the question, what does it mean to look <coughs> at something as an artist as opposed to as a craftsman? Now, I happen to think that Mark Lamos is one of the greatest theater artists of our time, so I disagree <laughs> with his own self-rubric. But, um, but indeed, towards the last part of your complex question. Right. The reason I work, no, it's okay. I love that. The reason I work with a company, the city company, is because I, I don't believe in the, uh, the American proclivity to turn individuals into um, uh, stars. And that my work is, it frustrates me a lot that people say, oh, <laughs> your signature. That my work is so dependent upon um, the collaborators I work with, designers, and, and particularly the actors, who are incredible interpreters of, of 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 ideas that I bring, and I feel that my job is basically to describe the world that I imagine based on my previous interaction and research, and then they start to disagree with that, and that disagreement gives me something to come back with. In other words, to me, the the the, the most horrible situation to be in in the theater is if everybody just nods and says okay, <laughs> because then you just might as well go home. So, so for me, the, the, the company basically disagrees enough for me to get over my own ego and give in to a bigger thing, which is the play we're trying to create. So I can't actually work with people who agree too much. So therefore, I find a company of people who are wonderful to be with and like to party, but they disagree. <laughs> well, you know, <clears throat> I'm gonna, I, I wanna kind of follow up with the, another kind of difficult question or complex question in that uh, a lot of us, I think, have an understanding of uh, directing or of, of rehearsing as getting into a room with a group of actors and sitting around a table and reading a script and reading a script and reading a script and then eventually begetting, be, beginning, I should say, to uh, stand and work through the text and move around and do that sort of thing. And, and yet you employ a, a technique that uh, Mary Overly created called the viewpoints, 
which is a, a different perspective. I think a lot of directors have uh, adopted it or adapted parts of it and use it in their work now, maybe even unconsciously. But I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about the viewpoints and how, with, without a, getting too technical, uh, how the viewpoints intersect with uh, your development of sure. works. No, first of all, I, I thank you for actually evoking the, the name Mary Overly because she is the inventor and she's one of those people who went away, went into her own imaginative source and came up with something called what she called the six viewpoints. And I scavenger-wise grab them and I get credit for them, which annoys me and I think her well, she's my colleague at NYU, so <laughs> right. I want to protect right. her. <laughs> yeah. But people, and it's again, the idea of giving one person the credit for uh, uh, what actually has grown from Mary into a lot of actors' bodies who have developed that work. Essentially, the viewpoints is Mary um, said, what, what is performance? It's made up of, as we know, time and space. And she divided time and space into subsets. Into, into actually practical issues that you can deal with. So the viewpoints is an improvisational system which you can practice creating fiction using time and space on a daily basis. It's like a ballet bar would be for, for, for dancers. The actors have to practice responding to each other, being in the moment, and being articulate in the face of uncertainty, which is we're always uncertain, but how can you make an articulate gesture Anyway, we use the viewpoints as uh, 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 training. In other words, it's, a lot of people say, well, what is the viewpoints technique to directing? Listen. <laughs> that would be the technique. Listen. <laughs> the viewpoints is ultimately about listening. But we practice it literally. We do, as a company, we do 15 minutes of Suzuki training and 15 minutes of viewpoints. And then we start a rehearsal and start either at the table <coughs> or moment one, how do we get from moment one to moment B? Oh, no, that would be two. <laughs> a to B, one to two. Um, uh, and, and in a way, you'd be surprised how traditional that approach is. But nonetheless, the, I don't say to an actor, go upstage right and start walking downstage left. An actor walks on the stage and makes a choice based on their understanding of viewpoints, and I can respond to that. So it's always who's making the first stroke on the canvas. This approach, if I had to say it in one sentence, says the actor makes the first stroke, the, the director responds, as opposed to the director making the first stroke and the actor responding. That's fascinating, because I have a different kind of uh, uh, understanding, a limited understanding of it, in which space is used, uh, levels are used, and we think of space <coughs> is thought about differently. Uh, you know, within the theatrical space. I mean, it's used, you know, the floor is used more, the, the body through space is, is used uh, uh, differently. Yes. In, in uh, more innovative ways than yeah. ordinarily just uh, the Peter Brook, uh, you know, a man walks across a stage in an act of theater. But, but it, no, it's seen anywhere, whether you use viewpoints <coughs> or not. I remember seeing um, Burn This on Broadway a number of years ago, which John Malkovich was in. And it was an amazing set. I can't remember who did the set. It was a huge Soho loft, and there was a couch in the middle. And until John Malkovich walked in, it was a couch play. We've all seen couch plays. There's a couch. There's a beautiful set. Nobody uses it. The actors rotate around the couch endlessly or sit on the couch. John Malkovich came in and he was viewpointing. He walked out the windows. He used the set to express the character and the situation. So it's not just psychological. It is, you know, how we sit in these chairs is an expression of this situation, what we want to evoke. And these are basic theater things. So, you know, I think, again, Mary Overly looked, went back, which is what great innovators do, and look at what everybody takes for granted and re 
reified them is the word, reify meaning sure. make something that's known and become unknown by habit, known again, new. Did I just speak English? <laughs> you did. You did. <laughs> Quite well, actually. <laughs> Don't you think, though, that a lot of what we do is responding? Mm -hmm. I, I, I mean, <clears throat> yeah. I, I like nothing better than, resp you know, than responding. I had an actress recently say, I want to be told. I said, I'm not going to tell you what to do. Why don't you just see if, you know, something occurs to you up there on the set? Because she was high up in the seascape set. And she said, I like to be told. And it was kind of this gauntlet. <laughs> you know, she's a mature actress, wonderful, Frances Sternhagen. And I said, well, I don't like telling. I like, I like just, why don't you just, if you don't feel like moving, just stay there until something happens. Yeah. And she was so frustrated that she, she didn't shut down, mm. you know, but she saw that the other three actors liked that. They didn't want to be told at all <laughs> at that moment. And so she sort of then got into the swing of it. But it was, I, I'm, I'm so much happier when a whole lot of baggage comes falling mm. into the rehearsal mm. space and energy and madness that I can just kind of watch for a while and right. then begin to respond to somehow. But, but a, lo a lot of whether it's viewpoints or is just different ways in which you set the imagination sparking. Yeah, yeah. So you get the viewpoints and it sends people into motion and frees them in their body and gets them outside their heads and gets them to kind of, I mean there's more sophisticated things to it because I don't know it well, but it's the same thing if you sit and work on a text. You don't actually, I don't always find I have anything that much to contribute, yeah. but it becomes a process of sparking mm -hmm. and mm. going off of the text and then sending things into the atmosphere which then then, and that's one part of the development, and then it gets built into pieces which then have to start to be selected. And, you know, the great classics are things that are constantly rewarding as you sort of dive into them. They keep feeding back and keep feeding back and keep feeding back. And in other plays, we all know that moment where you've, yeah. there's I have to say left. that I, I'm coming here this morning on the plane from Chicago, and I had a thought about the production that's running now is Merchant of Venice, and I thought, I have to call the actors for a rehearsal when I get back, because I thought of a much better ending. I did. Now, they're not going to be happy about that rehearsal, but we'll see that. <laughs> but yet, we should act on it while we can, yes? We should see it. Who knows? Now, that's an interesting play, because it's a play that often is not done, these days because fee people feel hate it. that it is, <laughs> well, they, it. they feel that it's an anti-Semitic play. I got a lot of letters about that. Well, tell I us got... a little bit about your experience with that production right now. Well, before, I felt terribly guilty when I um, announced it and got the terrible letters and phone calls from a lot of people. One person saying, you have to burn this play. Other people <coughs> saying, we're never coming back to the theater again. And I just thought, oh my God, have I hurt the theater mm. by doing this? Well. Ultimately, I believe that you have to face things that are awful. And this is, a, this is an anti-Semitic play. This is an anti-Christian play. This is an anti-savagery play. This is a play that's anti-treating anybody else heinously. That's what it really is to me. And so, so we've lived through it, and it's done very well, actually. I actually offered the people who didn't want to come free tickets to see it, and many of them did. Did they? And I, we had four Holocaust survivors there last week, and they were incredibly moved, as well as many Muslim families have come. And it's just been a tremendous, I think what, I mean, for instance, with a difficult play like that, here's the thing about Shakespeare, though, that I'm not sure is, I can only speak f for him or for uh, me about him, is that, th since I mentioned before, there's this mystical side of him. I mean, 
Shylock is a symbol of anyone who was scorned or left out or anyone whose all the doors of society have been shut to. And, and that feeling of exclusion and that horror about being not accepted just because you are who you are. That, I mean, I think all of us have felt excluded in one way or another during our lifetime. And there's no one in the world, I don't think, who could not relate to this. So I'm glad we've done it now, but I did have moments of terrible uh, fear and, and guilt, actually. It's the most exquisite play, I think. Yeah. I mean, in, in many ways, it's my favorite play, partially because, uh, partially because I, I saw it at an early age, but also because it evokes, it, it, it's, it's all about a skeptical attitude. You cannot choose <coughs> one character over another, and you can't choose one set of values in that play over another. This glittering world of beautiful Christians you know, and beautiful boys, and, and beautiful boys asking questions about their sexuality, and this extraordinarily icy kind of brilliant woman, Portia, you know, and then this little scuttling man who comes across the canvas and evokes, and I'm sure must have even then, I mean, all these personal reactions in the audience, partially because he's used so economically. I mean, he has very little to do in the play in terms of size of role. And yet the whole play, this gorgeous falderall, galvanizes around this dark little person <coughs> and his outsider status. You know, it's, it's so, I, every time I do it, I, I learn so much from it and I get so blown away by it and I get so upset with audiences who kind of stamp it as this thing that should be burned or mm -hmm. that it's hateful or that it's, because it it's, it's needs to be looked at, don't you think? I it do. needs to be understood and judged and thought about somehow. You know, I just, um, today on the plane, I just read a letter f uh, from um, an African-American high school student who saw the show, and Alicia, and she said, um, this is why it's so important to do this play. I have been the victim of racism, and this play makes me and all people, she said, aware of how bad that feels. So that's a good reason to do the play. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. And that's another answer to the question, how do the classics work for us today? How do the classics, you know, how important are the classics to us in culture today? Now, your company, the Chicago Shakespeare Theater, takes a larger view of classics in a certain way. Uh, there was a significant production of Pacific Overtures mm -hmm. there by Gary Griffin. Um, a few years ago, and I saw your terrific production of The Tempest in 2002, I think it was. Um, you've got this massive complex now. You've got all these stages to, to fill. How do you balance that with your own need to put the classics on the stage? Well, um, how do you do? How does that? How does that happen? How do? How do well, you? Well, first of all, the, the vision. The vision of the of the company is, you know, to do. It's a simple vision, just to do. Base it around Shakespeare's work and do other classics, just other great plays. It's a very easy vision, actually. And thank God he only wrote thirty-seven plays, so it's it's nice and tight. <laughs> I don't have to work too hard. But, um, I mean, Sondheim, to me, is uh, a genius, and his Pacific Overtures, I think, is just one of the finest musical scores 
that was, that's ever been written. And when Gary Griffin, who's now directing Color Purple here, um, came with me to the project, I went, yeah, we have to do that. And we've done, you know, we have, we have stayed mostly in, the in, in Shakespeare. But um, there's, there are no rules. I mean, I, I hate rules. I'd be very upset <coughs> if, you know, I, I love waste. I saw it, uh, Peter Hall's Waste and at the Old Vic. I think it's just a brilliant show. I wish I had seen yours. I mean, that's a, that's a classic, you know? All of Anne's work is because, I mean... We're going to come back in just a couple of minutes and we're going to talk uh, a little bit more about classics. But first, we want to hear a few words on the excellent works of the American Theatre Wing. The American Theatre Wing has played a vital role in New York's theatrical life for more than 60 years. We stand for excellence and we support education in the theater. Best known for creating the Tony Award, our work reaches beyond Broadway and New York. These seminar programs, which are supported by the Annenberg Foundation and the Dorothy Strelson Foundation, are an unequal form for discussions with today's most creative artists. Downstage Center's in-depth interviews are heard on XM Satellite Radio. Our grant and scholarship programs support New York theater companies and theater students. And since we began, we have given away more than two and a half million dollars. Our theater intern group helps young people who are just starting in their careers build a professional network. And Springboard NYC is a two-week boot camp for aspiring actors from colleges across the country. All of the American Theatre Wing's educational and media programs are available for free, on demand, from our website, americantheaterwing.org. Now, let's return to the seminar. Barbara, how do you uh, situate yourself in this situation with your fabulous new theatre so that you can do work that creatively nourishes yourself and, and the other artists with whom you work? and at the same time um, reaches out to audiences. And what's the audience response? And I'd like for others to sort of weigh in with how your audiences you know, receive the work that you're doing. Well, uh, let, me, let me start with the very first, I, I raised the beginning of the theater's history, which was about 19 years ago. I raised about $100,000 through the help of actors and designers and the whole entire theater community in Chicago because no one was doing Shakespeare and everyone wanted a Shakespeare theater. And so with that $100,000, I directed um, Troilus and Cressida for the first time. And you know, my mother and father were horrified because they said, why couldn't you have picked a play that somebody heard of? <laughs> and, but it was a play that I love and I'm haunted by. And we did it and it, was, it, was, it put the theater on the map. I mean, in terms of there had never been a production of Troilus and Cressida. Everybody came to see it because my feeling is in such a personal journey is that, is that everything Shakespeare wrote has a hell of a lot to say to all of us and about all of our lives. I mean, Troilus and Cressida, war and lechery, war and lechery, nothing else holds fashion, works today, you know? Whether it's a lechery about women or a lechery about greed, it's all there. <coughs> you know, it's happening deja vu all over again. So knowing that, I mean, the actors... Act, I think most of the actors, I think Shakespeare's very difficult to do because it's usually three hours of, it's exhausting. It's, for me, when I was an actress, it was far more exhausting than doing um, modern play, for, I don't, for whatever reason. I think the actors are thrilled at 
be able to get their chops around some of the great roles ever written. And also, I think they can also get tired of it because it does take so much out of you. So all of our actors work in all the different theaters in Chicago because you do have to take a break from it. Um, the audiences, on the other hand, I, I have to say, we did King John last year. People come. People come because there's a great story, and they know, I think, enough now <coughs> in terms of whatever Shakespeare writes, if there are fantastic actors on the stage, you're going to have a good time. You're going to have a challenging time. You're going to ask a lot of questions, and there are going to be a hell of a lot of questions that you will not be able to answer, which actually I like. I like leaving the theater wondering, unsure. So I don't know if I've answered your question. No, you have, of course. And what's, what's your experience with that, with, with building audiences? And uh, you know, you haven't really had one place. Your work tours the world. Well, actually, I keep hoping you're going to have a home here in New York sometime soon. Yeah, it's funny. We all live here, and yet yeah. we tour mostly. No, audiences is the obsession of the moment for me. I mean, th th this is the issue, the re audience's relationship to the stage and their job. What is their job? And I did have 10 years that where I did a play every year with my company in Louisville, Kentucky. And what I loved about that is the first few years, the audience would come, and they were a little bit in shock. And then they'd start coming, and you'd feel it when they come in the theater. They're rolling up their sleeves going, OK, what's up next? <laughs> and then they love it, you know? But it took 10 years to build that kind of excitement. So I'm aware of the fact that you need time. But I believe that in the last five years, four years, maybe since 9-11, audiences have changed profoundly. Mm. I find as the ticket prices go up, there becomes a sense of ownership in, uh, in a way that, that only a consumer society could create. And there, the audiences in this country are becoming more and more fundamentalist, meaning they come in, and if they don't see what they want right away, they shut down or they leave. It's not what I bought. Artists, we are starting to respond in kind, saying, this is the product. I got to make it strong and shiny so that it's liked. But if you look in other cultures, you find that audiences are allowed in on a process, on an, on an artist's process. I felt in Louisville, for example, that I was allowed that, that sort of process with an <coughs> audience over time. Now, so I can't just respond to that violently and shut down and just turn out shiny, bright things. I have started to understand, and this is very recent, that um, the times we're living in is what's creating it and that the time signature is changed in the last five years of our lives. How many cell phone messages do we get? How many emails do we get? How much is demanded of our attention every time you turn on the television or look around? So that the kind of uh, question that young directors are dealing with, which is what do you do with MTV time? Do you try, or inter internet time? Do you try to go faster than MTV time? That's the assumption. But what actually makes the theater probably the most extraordinary um, uh, our art form for right now is that we can create different time signatures, that audiences can come and breathe together in ways that are completely full of renewal. Music can do that too, but then the theater, unlike music, is about always society. It's about, can we get along in this room together? Can we make this thing work together? It's about us, unlike music, which is about uh, uh, cascades of, of, of alternative patterns of living. But, but, but social issues are what the theater is about. So the audience is uh, the subject to a large extent. So I'm passionately interested, terrified, and uh, uh, um, 
I, I, I feel um, responsible to ask the questions and, and but, not give up. In but order. I think that, um, if I could add to your thought, I think that uh, actually theater's a bit of a time machine in that if anyone who's done Shakespeare has, there's a certain, it actually changes people's sense of time. Uh, because if you go into Shakespeare, usually the first 20 minutes of any experience is this part you're talking about where people like want to shut down. They come in, they can't, they've got cell phones, they're coming from this whole world, and you have to do a like biological reordering of their <laughs> sense of who they are. Mm -hmm. At which point, as people kind of settle in and focus a bit, they fall into the story. And by the end of the, of the thing, there's that beautiful quiet that can mm -hmm. fall over a, 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 an audience where they actually go back to a different sense of time, where they're taking in an experience and they're present and they're quiet and they're not, so that the, the, the theaters become a kind of, uh, well, time machine's one way of looking at it, but also sort of, and that's my ADD metaphor earlier, it's like you have to kind of reorder everybody's sense of what that thing is and that all the great experiences change that. So when you leave, you feel refreshed no matter how dark or angry or horrible or uh, funny or anything the experience was because you feel you've been in some ways renewed mm. to some sense of what that is. I and that's where, it, that's where it becomes mm. effective. I think it's a bit simpler and more mundane than, than all those brilliant thoughts you're having, uh, which I agree with, but I feel, like, I feel like it comes down to very few things. I wish theater could be presented at different times of the day. I wish it were free or as free as television, or as cheap as a movie. And, 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 and we, would, we would be so reinvigorated mm -hmm. by who comes to us and who plays with us. If only just those mundane, boring things were taken care of, it is too expensive. Mm -hmm. And that's what causes the product thing. I paid $100 for this, I'm not interested. Let's go to dinner, mm -hmm. let's go to have another martini. I've seen it at my own shows, I've seen it at you know, Piazza when I was there, after, shortly after it opened, a couple in front of us just not my cup of tea, let's go. Grabs the wife, out they go. You know, last night at Seascape, same thing. You know, and you, you think, okay, but this isn't the product. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, and they, that, that, that step that they need to take is not being allowed to be taken because of commerce, almost, I'm pure and simple, I think. I, I want to jump on that, because I think you're so right. And <coughs> I heard some, I was talking with Ben Cameron, who's the executive director of TCG, Theater Communications Group, last week, and he said something that has haunted me, so maybe we could take it together forward. He said he was in a Barnes and Nobles the other day, and he was running down some steps, and he tripped over a guy who was sitting on the floor with his coffee reading a book, and he knocked his coffee over or something and said, excuse me, and, but Ben started thinking, and thinking, God, when he was growing up, he didn't read in a Barnes and Nobles, he read in a library. Now, a library is a place where you go and you have to be quiet, you have a card, and somebody else goes and gets the book and brings it out, and there are these rules. And he started thinking, and I, I think he's right, the theaters are still functioning like libraries. In other words, and yet we're in the Barnes and Noble time, that, that, that you go into a theater, you have your ticket, somebody tells you where to sit, you sit in the dark, you're not allowed to speak, and afterwards somebody tells you what it meant. Do you know? Yeah. That, there's, that there's something which is not functioning in our world, and I think it is certainly financial and money. It's also about how people come together and how they interact that I think can change if we, if we reify the act of going to the theater. Mm -hmm. Do you think it has anything to do with a proscenium house versus, for instance, a deep thrust? 
and, and you know what I mean in the culture, the kind of culture. I just love proscenium, so yeah. I. But you know what I mean. Yes. The culture space of space. Totally affected. Circle. Yeah. Totally. Right. The circle. Right. Yeah. But I do think people. I mean, perhaps I think that's a lot of that's true. But I also think that people are at the same time somewhere longing inside themselves for experiences which are bigger. They just don't come to the theater with a sense of history or a sense of shared meaning mm -hmm. or a sense of community that is perceivable except I mean, in the case of the larger context of New York about you know, watching the horse race and handicapping it or participating on levels which are not about submitting yourself to a story or to a different experience. That's why when you talk about being in Louisville for 10 years or you're in Chicago for 10 years, you actually build your own community. Mm -hmm. You build a people's, you know, a group of experiences in which people mm -hmm. come to that and they are allowed to in that context go, well, I didn't like that one, so I'm gone. I did like that one. I love that one. And they build some muscle memory as a community and as a place in relationship to a single group of people's expression. And that's when it becomes cumulative. And it, and it go, works against the larger cycle of it being only a consumer event. Because if I go to it for the first time only once, then I have no, I, I'm only going to have, I'm going to start at that place. Whereas if you talk about the park, those people have been going to the park all those years and they have that experience and they're outdoors. They're a part of something that's a, mm -hmm. a loving tradition of what makes a great piece of theater that has no expectation of it being any good or this or that because they don't have to pay for it or whatever. And that's when all those things can be broken. It just takes a lot of time. There's also, I think, something that classics actually do in a way, although maybe less so. They, because it's a known commodity, Hamlet, as you like it, Cymbeline, or sort of, you know, King John, there's, there's a different way of going to that somehow for an audience, I think, than there is of coming to, you know, a brand new musical or a brand new yeah. play. And what the critics and the money and the advertising give that brand new thing is, is, is a sort of com a comfy okayness and familiarity. Don't you find? I yeah. mean, it's like, well, I'll, I'll go to that because everybody says it's really good and it's getting all this stuff and yeah. I'll buy into that, you know, because, and you see those audiences, the stories you, you hear and you've been a part of yourselves are, 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 are you know, so terrifying. There's a, there's a wonderful actor in Seascape, Fred Weller, and we were talking about audiences. And he talked about being in a production of The Little Foxes at Lincoln Center a few years ago. And you have nearly a month of previews, right? And he said, and the curtain calls would come, and people, the entire audience, half the audience would jump to its feet for Franny Conroy as Birdie, and the other half would jump to its feet for, for um, Stockard. And cheering, and uh, Brantley kills it. And three weeks of, of, of polite applause. And, and, and I guess he said Brantley also particularly picked out Francis Conroy as not being effective. And he said it was just shocking to sit there and watch That's from one night to the next. And, you know, we've all been there. And, and in, the, in the reverse, where everybody's sitting there going, oh, this thing is not going to fly. And then, bingo, five great notices right. in the New York press or whatever. <laughs> well, one. <laughs> one that counts as five. And, and everybody's going and everybody's right. praising it. And you just think, what is the reality for this audience? Where are they... That reality what is not. Did that, what did that preview audience at the Little Foxes, who clearly was getting something that they loved, where did that stop, that transference, you know, that, ugh. 
But community over a long period of time is the only, in some ways, is the major antidote to that, whether it's people who go to your stuff all the time or whether yeah. it's in Chicago or Hartford or Seattle. It's over periods of time that you then worry less about that kind of stuff because New York has its own very special matrix of it is a commerce-based right. industry. Right. And people are out making a lot of money off of it. And they're, you right. know, and the people who go kind of feed and enjoy that. And the people who watch it and handicap it are... You know, so that's a whole another thing as opposed to a long-term conversation yeah. with a group of people inside of a community where people can, yeah. you, you took them right. through something really difficult right. with Merchant of Venice and they will now be more deeply connected to the next thing. Right. And you, that is the part that, that Shakespeare had, whether he was doing the most intense amount of work in 20 years anyone ever did, or Moliere mm -hmm. with, the, with the court of France, or Euripides and, you know, I don't know how beloved he was in Greece, but I hear his notices were good. <laughs> <laughs> um, so. Well, uh, do, you, do you find when you're working with classic texts that you sometimes get feedback from audiences about the way the work is supposed to be done? I just got a letter uh, saying uh, from the Richard, about the Merchant of Venice. So where, uh, where was Venice? <laughs> where were the canals and where were the costumes? Yeah, they get. I mean, they can. That's all right. They're paying their money. They have a. They have a right to write me letters like that. You know? Well, that's part of that sense of community yeah. that Bart right. talks about. Yeah, I mean, I think there used to be like this sense of like. Ashland and Minneapolis of the Guthrie in the 60s and 70s that everything was compared to at one point. Right. I think that's much less true now when it comes to Shakespeare. I actually wish people were more annoyed and more uh, vigorous in their opinions because it would at least you would feel mm. like there was something you were going against. Be careful what you wish for. No, <laughs> believe me. I, it, it's always better because then at least you feel like there's something that's being responded to. Um, Especially when it comes to the actual craftsmanship of it, the actual speaking or the actual, you know, context of Shakespeare or the history or any of that. That's all about well, Let's pick up on that issue of craftsmanship because um, it's, it's, it's a common, I don't know if it's a canard, it's a common idea in culture that American actors have a difficult time with uh, classic texts, with, with Shakespeare, with, with Aeschylus. Do yeah. you find that, I've been seeing so many shaking heads around here, that my question <laughs> of do you think, think that's so. accurate? Well. But I think that what I wonder about <coughs> is that you have this naturalistic sort of filmic television style of acting that's often taught uh, around and often emulated by uh, theater students. And I'm wondering what your experience is with people, with actors and their training and in the handling, handling of the text. Mark, could you uh, speak to that? I just have, I, I love the way American actors speak Shakespeare. I also think that there's, I mean, that's a big generalization. You know, obviously some of them don't because I never cast them, but, um, <laughs> but, but there are all these training programs and they're wonderful for the most part. And there are all these theaters that do classic plays and half of them or more have voice coaches, have, you know, and, uh, you know, recently I worked for Barbara in Chicago with a cast, some of which had not really done very much Shakespeare before. A fabulous Steppenwolf actress named Rondi Reed was playing the nurse. Mm. And guess what? You know, a great actress, guess what she can do? She can parse the text. <laughs> she, she can get all excited and avid about feminine and masculine line endings and um, where to breathe. And, you know, why not? Yeah. 
and 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 but it, but she Rondi's can speak been around for thirty years. She has, so, but I mean, she's basically. I mean, I'm addressing your thing about, anything, about she's she's a Steppenwolf actress, of course. and that's how she's kind of known. And and here she was doing exactly the kind of work that a very young post Juilliard or post whatever trained actress would be would be doing in responding to the text, and then bringing to it all this other stuff. So I have never, I've always resented this kind of feeling that. American actors have this struggle with classic texts because they don't. You know, we're a hymn-singing society, for crying out loud. We're, we're a society that, that started out being based on a lot of, you know, um, I mean, look at Emily Dickinson. Look at Whitman. It's, it's there. Look at all those preachers that the society's based on. The, the spoken word is a very real yeah. part of our lives. Uh I'm, you know, I'm a huge advocate about American Shakespeare. I mean, I'm like a major, and having taken this show, most of our problem is our own the insecurities of taking Cymbeline to the RSC. Most of our insecurities are Let, about... Let's tell the audience what that, because you did the, you did the Cymbeline at Stratford-upon-Avon, yeah. and then you did it in Idaho, and you did it in Seattle. In Idaho, Seattle, Stratford, New York. Oh, okay, in that Four order. Four different then, productions. Right, okay, go ahead, I'm sorry. But, um... Uh, the, the interesting thing is most of that is our insecurities mm -hmm. about the English. Americans' sense of insecurity okay. about themselves, that they are not intellectually powerful or whatever when it comes to culture or art, which is completely not true. And it is a, some, it is a struggle that goes back to the 19th century when there were riots down by the public theater over the same, whether they were hiring an English actor or American actors. Mm -hmm. That's an older thing. But the interesting part is American actors do much more Shakespeare, have much more experience at it. There's much more crisis currently in the British theater. The worst speaking Shakespeare I've ever heard in my entire life. Without any, without any qualification. It was, in, it was in the National Theater in England. And, and I'm that not, was? That was a Midsummer Night's Dream a long time ago, which was okay. a very good production, but it was still horribly spoken. I mean, incomprehensibly awful. It was very cheering. I have to <laughs> and I ha the, the thing about it is, is that I also sat on a panel with some very distinguished English people. And I was with um, Lisa Gay Hamilton and Harry Lennox and some great uh, actors, some of them African-American and, you know, all of us there. And honestly, what was interesting was they talked about us like some sort of weird stereotype out of the 50s who did like method acting and how could we access the text when we were so concerned about emotion and stuff. And it was like, it was the most bizarre, creepy, stereotyped, I, I mean it was a weird thing. And it was the only thing that made the difference was the audience who were from Stratford who'd seen the production who started yelling at them oh, really? because they were going, what are you talking about? Because um, we made a huge effort to make sure it was extremely well spoken. And so those things are, and those things are just givens about American work. It's a great sound, it's a hard R, it's a great muscularity in the language, it could even be closer to Shakespeare's. And, you know, our insecurities about this are you know, notwithstanding. American classical Shakespeare is as strong as it's been in 20 years. Barbara, you're, you run years. a Shakespeare theater, so I'm going to let you weigh in. Well, I'll, I'll weigh in. Uh, we've hired a number of um, directors from all over the country, but the, we have a big group from, from England uh, over the last 20 years. And, and every one of them, without exception, has said, we could have, I could have cast this play twice or in Chicago. He said, and the great thing that they loved about Chicago actors, and I'm sure it's about American actors, is that their emotions are so, they're, they're just right under the surface. So you couple that with, you know, a, a, little, a little schooling in how to speak the verse, which is not rocket science, anyone can learn it. 
And that plus, you know, the technical plus the emotional. And there wasn't one who didn't want to come back and work again with American actors. So I think that's, I think we're over that. Yeah. Really also, over you know, that. I mean, look at, look at who we, we have to speak ourselves. Williams. Right. I mean, can you do a Tennessee Williams play without an actress and an actor who know how to speak, how to, how to breathe, how to, mm -hmm. you know, keep the emotion on the, on the words? Some people have tried. Well, yeah, but, you, but they failed because they, the, the, the speech isn't aligned to, uh, isn't aligned to the, um, the intention of the, of, of the words on the page. Or Miller. I mean, even, even late Miller, even disparaged Miller is, is an, an immense uh, amount of, of, of technical work for actors to, to, to push out there and to integrate as well as to speak. Just simple speaking, a mammoth play, a pinter play, they require exactly what a Shakespeare play does, I think. Yeah, I mean, I've never known... The, the, lar the larger issue is really, you know, allowing actors to train themselves in the activity of making theater in big rooms and big sounds, right. in which they have to make emotions travel 50, 60, 70, 80 feet. And that's a different thing than if you're in a television studio and you can't hear the person and they're like 12 feet away and it's, it's all shrunk down. And that's a different kind of technique. And, you know, one doesn't cancel out the other, no. but you know, they, there's a muscularity that's got yeah. to be learned. Now, Anne, do you face this uh, issue with, uh, with your work with the classics or...? Uh, no, what I, what I found, and, and you, three of you have done far more Shakespeare than I have, I'm just beginning my Shakespeare adventure, is that what, with Shakespeare I found that actors have more ownership over Shakespeare than I have ever experienced in my life. I mean, it's amazing. They take those plays and they feel like it's, they're theirs. They're not the directors. I like that a lot. I really do. But what I find in general is that actors in this country long to be challenged because a lot of the, the smaller work, the television work, the work for camera, the work in small spaces don't actually ask for muscularity, voice, thinking, intelligence, uh, emotion to meet the, the, the experience of speaking. And so whenever you ask an actor to do something hard, they love it. And so if anything I would blame, I think our training is, is too easy. I think most American training is a little bit too much roly on the floory, if you know what I mean. And it needs to be much more difficult to accomplish. And that will train people to, to speak in, in large venues. You know? But then there's that, I think the most brilliant thing that, that, that Stanislavski's whole work, he said, was based around this problem, which is you're in a room. You're in a living room, you're talking to the person you love, you're saying that you love them for the first time, and there's a thousand people watching. <laughs> Go. <laughs> you know, that, that issue is very, very interesting. It's not a problem in, in front of a camera, because with a camera you need to, two things. You need to be spontaneous and you need to be photogenic. That's it. You don't need to repeat, you don't need the muscularity. And that's a, a particular talent. What gets us into trouble is when we confuse the two art forms because they are very different. Totally. And yeah. acting for the camera is, 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 a, is not about the body and space in the same way that, uh, that the theater is. Uh, Bart mentioned earlier that there was a time when there were riots in the streets here in New York down in Astor Place over uh, two productions of, shall we say, the Scottish play. Um, and actually, there were three productions going on at the time in New York. Now, I can't imagine today seeing three productions of a single, a single Shakespeare play in New York, but I can envision it perhaps in, uh, in London. 
uh, is, or am I wrong? Bart, you just... Well, the problem is, is that at that point there was no television, no film, no nothing. So there was, there was a lot of competition over what opportunities there were. That was all and the media. Now, sure. now there's so much stuff that, you know, one good production of the Scottish play, I bet you'd be surprised to find in London a good production of the Scottish play. But there, know, could there could be three. There could be three. There have been three in, only in recent history running at the same time. There tend to be clusters of Shakespeare's anyway at certain times because they do tend to kind of find their way back into the zeitgeist at certain moments. Well, when there were two Cymbelines the year yeah. you did your Cymbeline here suddenly be an outbreak of Pericles. <laughs> outbreak. You, know, you never know why, but they do tend to find, you know, they're, they're weird that way. But that's, you know. But I don't, I think it's a different thing. It's that um, the classical impulse is maybe harder to sustain because it isn't as immediately rewarding and it does take a lot of work and resources and theaters can't afford as many people and so those things actually tend to have a bigger impact on whether there's more of them being done than otherwise. Um, but that's a separate. Well, you know, we have an audience with us that includes some students and we also have in our viewing audience beyond this room uh, a number of people who want to work in the theater, want to learn about working in the theater, which is why we call the seminar Working in the Theater. I'm wondering if uh, each of you would mind telling us a little bit about the inspiration in your own work for becoming directors, for becoming theater artists, and maybe tell us a little bit about the, your training. Mark, would you, uh, would you start? Oh, Lord. I, I, because you have uh, a, you have this massive <laughs> resume of acting and opera <laughs> Well, I did bounce around. I started as a musician. I was a violinist when I was a kid, and I went into college on a violin scholarship. So it was music, and then I, I loved acting. So I started to act. I'm sure we all did that, you know. And then um, I had to abandon music and continue with the acting. And about after about ten years of acting in regional theater and Broadway and off. Uh, someone offered me the chance to direct something. And I still didn't think, I again, I mean, I was like, you know, I, I was that kind of actor that owned Shakespeare, the director was wrong, and he was just doing traffic, and I was really, <laughs> you know. And, um, and I still felt that after I started directing, these small plays, a Fugard play and a couple other things. And then the directing just took over. I just started to be asked to direct. I couldn't act anymore. I couldn't fit it into my schedule, to be honest. And, um, and I had to learn how to talk to actors in a, in a slightly different way than actors had all talked to each other, getting the show up <coughs> with the director sitting there. So I, it's, 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 it's been an odd progress. And I feel now, odd, strangely, that um, I am I'm more, I, I, I need to learn more than ever. That's the, the, the oddest thing that's occurred to me in the last year, sort of, is that I want to perfect how I speak to actors and I want to perfect how I listen and watch because I suddenly feel as if I'm, I need to do that. You know, I mean, it's this constant learning experience that is. So I had this experience that every, every the, the more I know, the less I realize I, how much I know. Yeah. Is that is that? I guess a little bit, a little bit. It's that it's that feeling of what is exactly the word to say, when, and when is the time to say it that will <coughs> unlock that performance and let it go to another level. I'm just way into that right now. The other stuff, the sort of conceptualizing a production or thinking about a text or all of that, been there, done that, that that's fine. Right now, what, what I'm most intrigued by is what, what, how little can I do 
and how what will be just enough to to set something afloat. It's it's very uh, it's a very uh, it's an interesting time for me. You know. Great. <laughs> and how how did you uh, <coughs> get started on yeah, this? Yeah, I path? want to respond to I think something I've understood about directing to something Mark said. Then I will tell Please. you how I started. But I, directing is the job of making yourself unnecessary. Because yeah. in the beginning, you're really necessary. You describe, you bring everybody together, you deal with temper tantrums, you, you know, whatever it is that's mm -hmm. going on, you're somehow in the middle of it, mm -hmm. calm and spontaneous and ready to laugh is your job. Mm -hmm. But at a certain point, you just aren't necessary anymore. And there's a phenomenon which all of us, I think you'll recognize this, except you're an artistic director, so, and you are too, so you won't know exactly what I mean, but it's when the, the <coughs> opening night comes and there's nowhere to put your jacket. Yes. Yes. It's like yes. everybody in the theater, you guys have offices, <laughs> but everybody in the theater has a place to put their things, and you wander around going, can I leave my bag in your, in the stage management booth? You know, can I pee no in your dressing room? <laughs> Actually, I used to complain to New York Theater Workshop, where I've worked a lot, I said, you know, there's, I said to the production manager then, Sue White, then I said, there's nowhere to put your jacket, you know, and so they now have a director's hook. <coughs> You'll find it, if you go in the, if you go in the box office, because I complained enough, there's a little hook and it says director's hook. <laughs> and you can put your it should be named after you. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, I started um, becoming obsolete. No, I started uh, uh, as a reaction to my life, which was I was uh, brought up in the Navy and we moved every year. So what that meant, or two years, the longest place I ever lived was two and a half years, that was Japan, is uh, actually Mark and I wandered around my old neighborhood in Japan once in Tokyo, remember that? Oh. Anyway, um, uh, uh, and what happens is a, a little girl, you get pulled up every year or two, you, all the people that you've learned to love, you're never gonna see again for the rest of your life, you're plunked down into the next place and there's a whole these other new people you don't know and you have to learn to get on. A lot of people who uh, go through this, they're, they're Navy kids like me or what they call dip kids. You know what dip kids are? Diplomatic kids or mish kids, missionary, missionary kids. Children. We're like a tribe. We, um, we get to the age of 18 and you wonder why you can't have a, a, a close emotional relationship. You just, because you know, you've learned to shut down those parts of you and you either deal with it or you don't. Anyway, but what I did find is that I would be plunked down into a big school and I didn't know anybody, but I found there was a little place somewhere in the school, and they were usually horrible public, massive schools, that somewhere somebody was making a play. And what this did was reinforce my life, which is it is a small group of people who get really close, fall in love, make something beautiful, then it's over and you never see them again. Mm. And this was somehow encouraging to me. And so every school I went to, I found this place, but I never acted. I never had the interest to act. I was always, you know, pulling up the curtain or I would get the uh, hall pass to, to be able to walk around the halls during uh, classes and look for props, you know, and not get in trouble. And uh, 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 I had a French teacher who was, you know, every one of us probably has somebody in your life that made you an artist. And this person, her name was Jill Warren, and she, uh, she decided in 1967 in Middletown High School in Middletown, Rhode Island, to do the bald soprano, Ionesco. I mean, this is in Middletown High School where we've done, you know, Charlie's Aunt and Oklahoma and everything. I was always the student director, which meant I had got hall passes. She decided to do that play, which I became the student director. True story, 
weeks before the opening, she called me and said, I have the flu, you have to take over. So I had to take over and learn not only what the, this play meant, but how to stage it. And in some ways, I think I haven't changed at all, that what I do is still the same rhythm, pattern, sense of humor, that nothing's changed as much as I try to learn. And uh, the, the, all the good things happened, which was that I had a crush on the boy playing, Jimmy Cometa playing um, Mr. Smith, so we ran after each other. So love helps. And it was, uh, it was a big hit, which really helps. And so, and you know, theater in those days smelled like lunch, because you had it in the, uh, 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 what was it called, the lunchatorium? No, the, the, the cafetorium, you know, the, one end of the cafeteria, there was a, a raised stage and the curtain pulled open. Anyway, but that was what made me decide for the rest of my life to be a director, was that one show, and that one teacher who gave me the responsibility. Mm. <coughs> impact that a teacher can have. Unbelievable. Yeah. Tremendous. That one person yeah. who looks at you and says, you can do this, <coughs> or you might be somebody. Or have you read this? Mm. Or, yeah. Have you or seen look at this. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Just some simple thing. Yeah, yeah. Barbara, how did, uh, how did you get your start? Well, I was an actress um, in Chicago, and um, I came back to New York here and did some acting, and I didn't like it very much. wanted to go back to Chicago and my friendships there. And the first week I was back, I hurt my knee. And I had already had two knee operations, one during a production of Tobacco Road from Summer Stock. And this was the third operation. And um, I couldn't walk for about a year or two. And so I couldn't act because, you know, I was too old for Tiny Tim. And, and um, what happened was the only thing I could do, I had to earn some money is I had to, uh, I knew I could teach Shakespeare. So I called 12 friends up, professional actors who I was performing with, and I said, the only thing I know is Shakespeare. I, I had a great teacher at Northwestern, like your French teacher. Mm -hmm. And um, so we started, I said, I want to teach. You're going to pay me, I think, it was $70 a week. And we were going to go week to week to week, and we're going to learn all about the entire canon, and maybe we would start a Shakespeare company in Chicago. And so those 12 act, professional actors became 40 over two months, mm -hmm. three months. And those classes went on for two or three years. They taught me mostly, because they were so talented. I learned so much. And then we did our first show on top of the roof of the Red Lion Pub, and that's what happened. I mean, The rest is history. Yeah, <laughs> indeed. Yeah. And he is OK. <laughs> <laughs> How about you, Bart? How did you uh, get go down this path? Uh, uh, probably slightly differently. I, I had the sort of weird genetic uh, opportunity to be born in San Francisco during the 60s and 70s. Mm. And I had a lot of older <laughs> brothers and sisters. And um, at a very, very young age, they took me to some very, very out of control rock and roll concerts when I was young. <laughs> and uh, particularly Grateful Dead concerts, which as an 11-year-old, no drugs, no anything, just everybody went these sort of insane, unmediated community experiences with entire, it was the only real theater experience I've been to where the audience took bigger risks than the people on the stage. <laughs> um, but um, uh, it, it, just, it just sort of completely was so mind-blowing and so experimental and so uh, invigorating that it kind of led me toward looking for those experiences of transcendence, which in a large, in a group setting, these people kind of really went after. And it was a completely open form. It wasn't, you know, they were very experimental. As there was no sort of set rock and roll thing about it, you know. So that, that completely kind of 
drop something in my Coke. And, um, <laughs> you know, just sort of on a spiritual level. And I just kind of kept pursuing experiences which seemed to be a, about that. They were also about being connected to other people and being in situations where I could do that. But I never could act, and I really started directing, and I did some writing, but there was never any specific thing. But it really goes back to these sort of crazy, insane trips. Did you train? As a, did you take training as a director? Oh, I did. I had two, a couple of great mentors. You know, Mark was one of them. Uh, Garland Wright was another. I worked a lot with Robert Woodruff. I studied Tadush Cantor overseas. I did, I mean, I've done a million sort of explorations into the whole wide history of what it means to be a director. But that all came after just this sort of big experience of, you know, these guys doing stuff that seemed to me to be a lot of fun. Well, you know, Anne, you're the, uh, the head of the graduate directing program at Columbia. How, i put you on the spot here, how significant is it? I haven't heard one person talk about going to, I'm, I'm maybe the only person here who went to graduate school in directing. You know, is that, how important is that to the training of a, uh, of a director, do you think? It's not. The only important thing for a director... <laughs> which, which explains why I'm a theater critic and writer. No, no it can be, but it doesn't have to be. Uh, the only thing that helps a director, assisting doesn't help, studying is fine, but you know, you end up with the same thing you're doing when you're 15, ultimately. What helps is being in the crisis of rehearsal. That's the only way you learn how to direct. As a matter of fact, sometimes I think assisting sets you back because you start comparing yourself to the director you're assisting or, or imitating them and then you finally find out that's not your process. But the minute you walk into a room with actors, there is a crisis and you have to get over your ego, get over the ideas that earned you the right to be in the room and just deal with the material and this, the material of the play and the materials that you have, which are these people in this room. So if, if a directing school, which at Columbia, that's what I do, I say in the first year of their three-year training, they do two fully staged short productions a week. For 14 times two is 28 weeks. Wow. That's a lot. Yeah. So by the third week, they don't know, Talk who, about they, a crisis. They don't know who they are. They've, run, they've done, gone through all their tricks you know, a lot of them have been out of school for a while. They come back to grad school. They don't know. They don't know, and they have to start building their muscles and working in the moment. Then, as the years go on, the three years, they they get in their second year a semester. They do two projects, and then in their final year, they don't take classes. They do two internships, which are usually assisting, and uh, a thesis project. So th it's the opposite of the way directing is often taught, which is start with nothing and very little. But you start with the Greeks, and you start with, um, that's one of the two projects they do in their first uh, week of their first semester of training. Would you suggest to uh, directors, uh, budding directors, that just getting a group of actors and getting into a room and beginning to work with the text or beginning to create a text is the way to work? Absolutely. It's the only way. I mean, I don't, I, I, I don't think that, I think, Anne, you're, it's a brilliant, it sounds like a brilliant. Uh, idea for, I mean, just taking those those students through. Yeah. I love it. Just because practical, the, you can only communicate with a person when you're communicating with a person. You've got to be alone in that room with the text and actors, or it's just philosophy. Yeah, and which doesn't work. Directors, by their nature, have to be persuasive and inspiring and um, 
creative organizers and they have to pull things together and especially early in your career you find there's nothing really going to stop you. You're just going to figure out how you're going to do it and you're not going to know which things are going to lead to the next thing. You just want to kind of go ahead and do it. So those skills are the ones you automatically identify in good students. The ones who don't seem, you can't really control because they're already off doing a hundred things and organizing it and setting stuff on fire and doing things they shouldn't be doing and then you feel that energy is there to create you know that organizing principle. I've learned nothing I mean I should this a, I haven't learned very much from all the success that happily we've had I've learned much more every time I fail that's when I learn every time I make oh, mistakes that's the that's the most valuable and painful but it's the most valuable time so so, where do we go from here? <laughs> where do we go from here with the classics in America? What happens now? That's the question that I, that I think that we need to address. I don't think that we're going to have quite the time today to, uh, to address <coughs> the question. But the, what, I, what I keep thinking about is I know that we're funding um, Shakespeare in the communities now. The, the NEA is doing that, and we know that um, the government will never, is never going to fund the arts the way we want them to fund the arts or the way that many people want them to fund never the arts. Never say never. It could happen. Uh, it did happen once. It did happen once. At, and, and it's in interesting, of course, they were the best funded under Richard Nixon. And, and who knew we would be better funded, Richard they're Nixon? They're better funded under George Bush, so it's that's all right. good. Yeah. It's scary, really. Yep. Well, and that's, that's the question. Where, what is the next step? Unfortunately, we don't have time to discuss what that next step is going to be today because uh, we've come to the end of our time together today. This has been the American Theater Wings Working in the Theater Seminars coming to you from the Graduate Center of the City University of New York in association with the CUNY Department of Continuing Education and Public Programs as well as our longtime partners at CUNY TV. On behalf of the Wing, please join me in thanking our panel panelists for being here today.